in our series. And, and each week in this series of, of Advent, we're looking at the gift God has given us, for unto us is born. The Christmas story is about God's gift to us and what, what we receive in the coming and in, in the gift of, of Jesus. And so we've, we've tied that into some of the themes of, of Advent, which we started with hope last week. And today we talk about the peace, the peace that God gives and, and how God speaks that peace into our lives and, and what, that, what that looks like. And want to tie it to a part of the story that we probably don't give a lot of attention to because it's not a person and it's not an event, but it's the place. If you came into the if you came to the living nativity and, and if you know the Christmas story well, you know that the heart of the story takes place in the city, or really not much more than a village, of of Bethlehem. That's where Mary and Joseph go. That's where the child is born. That's where the first days are spent. And and that's part of the, the heart of the story. And so I want to turn to Luke chapter two, just to root us this morning in the gospel story and in the, the infancy narratives in these first seven verses of Luke's gospel about the birth of Jesus. And uh, these are the words that we read beginning at verse one. It says that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, help us to hear the story through a, a fresh lens with, with new ears and hearts to receive and, and to be open to the peace that you offer and give through Christ and this gift that we receive at Christmas. Bless these moments and bless these words, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, undoubtedly, if you've spent any time with the, the story and you've thought much about the story of the birth of Jesus, you know, we focus on Mary and Joseph and, and the circumstances and the, the stable and no room in the inn and, and all the, the shepherds and then later the wise men, all the, the, the players involved in the story. But I, but I wonder how often we've thought about the place. Why Bethlehem? I mean, think about God's timing, because we understand God's hands involved in this. This, is, this isn't happen chance. This isn't coincidence. So Mary and Joseph have to make this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 85 miles across the hill country of Judea, while Mary is nine months pregnant. And we've talked about this before. This is not a luxury coach. They're not traveling in a nice car. There's no train. They're going by foot and maybe donkey. 85 miles. Ladies, nine months pregnant. How long do you think that would take? How happy would you be at that journey? I mean, if you covered 20 miles a day, which is a lot of ground to cover, that's still a four and a half day journey. So 10 miles a day, which is probably more reasonable. Again, nine months pregnant. That's nine days to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And 
And if we understand God's hands in it, if we understand this isn't coincidence, why? Why? Why Bethlehem? Bethlehem was a fairly, for much of the history of Israel, was, was kind of an insignificant town or village. In Joshua chapter 15, the 46 cities of Judea are named for the distribution of land. Bethlehem isn't even mentioned. It isn't even mentioned. Yet, it is clearly important to God that this be the place of the birth of Jesus. Now, of course, it fulfills the prophets. Micah 5.2 says that though Bethlehem, small and insignificant, from you will come the ruler of Israel. So the prophet spoke of Bethlehem, but that, but that doesn't really speak of why. And I think the why is that God uses what seems small and insignificant. I mean, the, the nature of God is to, is to turn expectations on their head. Excuse me. And God uses small and insignificant things or, or afterthoughts to be instruments of, of his purpose and, and players in the divine story, in the divine narrative. And that's Bethlehem. Because though Bethlehem may not be seen as significant in the history of Israel, it would become incredibly significant. Bethlehem is the place where Jacob had a son and where he would bury a beloved wife, Rachel. Bethlehem is the place where Samuel would find a king among the shepherds. And it's the place where shepherds would find a king among the sheep. It's an important, it's an important place, though somewhat removed from the center of life, if you will, of Jerusalem. Though not far removed. It is important for God that this be the place of the birth of Jesus. And, and you wonder why. Well, I think part of it is because God chose Bethlehem for important things to happen. I talked about Jacob and David. Certainly we know the birth of Jesus. But there's another story that happens in Bethlehem that you may or may not be familiar with. And it's the story of Ruth. And it's the story of one of the most, I think, intimate stories of human rescue in all of the Bible. And when we study the story of Ruth... We get, to get, we, we get to see on an on a individual level what God does through Jesus on a wise, wide, wider cosmic level. We, we get to kind of see the, the, the hand of God at work in a way that becomes really the pattern of God. And, and we see it through the life of this woman named Ruth. And so I thought for this morning, let's step through the story of Ruth. Let's, let's talk about Ruth. Again, some of you know the story, some of you don't. And that's okay, whichever place you happen to be. And if, if you like to follow along and you want to open your Bibles to the Old Testament, you can kind of walk through this. It's only four chapters. But in it, we find some important truths about how God works. And there's five words, five key words. If you're a note taker, these are the five words I would encourage you to write down this morning as we talk about the story of Ruth. And the first word is this, desperation. Desperation. When we get introduced to the first characters of the book, we are told that a man named Elimelech, who was from Bethlehem with his wife 
Naomi and two sons, decided to move to Moab. So they left Judea. And they moved to Moab. And while they were there, Elimelech dies. And so Naomi is left with her two sons. And her two sons take wives. Kilion and Malon take wives. And Kilion marries a woman named Orpah. And Malon marries a woman named Ruth. And together they live until about 10 years into their time in Moab when both of the sons die. And now Naomi is left with her only family being her two now widowed daughters-in-laws. And it begins in five verses. We quickly learn this is a story of desperation. It's a story of desperation because you have to context, you have to locate the story contextually. There's no pensions. There's no retirement plans. As a woman, your, your survival in this time was dependent upon your husband. And if your husband died, it would be dependent upon your sons. Now, understand Naomi's plight. Her husband has died, and now her sons have died. Her family is her two daughter-in-laws, together three widows. It's a time of desperation. Uh, Pete Briscoe, who's a a pastor out in Texas and a teacher, and he says it quite sharply. He says, for a woman in this situation, there's two options. It's destitute or prostitute. That's how serious this is. But what we learn and what we know through through the narrative of the scriptures is that God has a heart for the destitute. God has a heart for those who find themselves in desperation. So, in this place, Naomi hears that there is food back in Judea. And so she decides to return home. And as she begins her journey, she turns to her daughter-in-laws. And she says, go back to your families. You stay here. Stay here. This is your home. This is your family residence, if you will, place of, of heritage. And go back to your families. And so Orpah does. She goes back to her family. Tearfully, she leaves her mother-in-law. But Ruth refuses. Ruth says, I will not leave you. And that becomes the lead to, to, the, to the most often quoted verse in Ruth, which is, um, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She refuses to leave Naomi. So Naomi and Ruth, in in the very first chapter, verse 20, return to Bethlehem. They come back to Bethlehem. So they come back in desperation. The second word is despondency. Despondency. Because in verse 20, it says that when they returned, the, the women of Bethlehem, the townspeople, saw her and they said, Could this be Naomi? Could this be Naomi returning? And in that moment, she looks at them and she says, do not call me Naomi. Because Naomi means pleasant. She says, call me Mara. Because Mara means bitter. Mara means bitter. For God has afflicted me. God has abandoned me. God has forsaken me. Whatever language you want to use, she feels like God has turned on her. And so no longer does she see herself pleasant. She sees herself broken. She sees herself bitter. She is in a place of utter despondence. So the story starts with this. This is the foundation, desperation 
and despondency. It's not the beginning of what we would expect to be a feel-good story. But don't you know, in our greatest places of desperation and despondency and greatest places of need and brokenness, that's where God shows up. And that becomes the story of Ruth and Naomi. Because as we turn to the second chapter, Naomi kind of mentions something. It's kind of almost a, a misplaced statement right at the beginning. She mentions that there is a, a family member of the tribe of, of the clan of Elimelech, and his name is, is Boaz. And then the kind of the story shifts away from him, and, and we hear Naomi say that, that I am going, or, or Ruth say to Naomi, I'm going to go glean. I'm going to go into the fields to glean. Now, this is where we have to understand some of the, the, um, the law that, that governed the people. God's law is they understand how they took care of the poor. And because Naomi and Ruth are now both widows, they're poor. And what was set up is at the time, in fact, in verse 20, when it seems like it, it says it's worse, there's, there's a statement there at the end. And it says that they came to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. At the time, and that's really, really important. Because I think that's a key truth in there, that when things seem their worst, God is already starting to plant for a harvest. God is starting to plant for a redemptive story. And so they come at the barley harvest. So <laughs> Ruth says to Naomi in, in chapter 2, I'm going to go glean. Now, this is the, the way that, that this worked. When they would harvest the barley fields, according to Levitical law and the law of Deuteronomy, they would leave the corners of the fields unharvested. That was for the poor. So the poor could come and, and could harvest from the, the corners, the edges, if you will. And then the poor, and most often the widows, could walk behind the harvesters and the servant girls, and they could pick up whatever was left behind. They could either pick from the stalks if they got passed over, or they could pick what had fallen and dropped. And so that's how they, one of the ways that they helped provide for the poor. So Ruth says, I'm going to go and glean. And so she does, and she begins to work the field of Boaz. And it says about verse 3, I think, that Boaz shows up. And he, he greets his harvesters. And this is what he says. This is, this is powerful. He says, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. Now, why? We get a little parallel to the, to the Christmas story here. Because remember what the heart of Christmas is. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus comes, and in his person, a man from Bethlehem. And he says, God is with you. God is with you. Boaz says, God, be with you. Jesus will come and say, God is with you. And, and, the, and the people speak their blessings back to Boaz. And, and as he comes to the field, he sees the women gleaning. And he sees Ruth, and he doesn't recognize her. And so he says, who is she? And they say, this is Naomi's daughter-in-law. This is Naomi's daughter-in-law. And he knows Naomi's story. And this becomes the third word hyphenated or phrase because it's really two so just forgive me loving kindness loving kindness this is where loving kindness steps in to the story because Boaz knows what Ruth has done in her faithfulness for to Naomi he knows that she has refused to leave her mother-in-law and so he calls her and he says to her 
do not go glean other fields. In other words, don't, what they would commonly do is you'd get what you could at this field and you'd go get what you could at this field and you'd kind of move around as not to be a nuisance or a, an, a bother. But he says to Ruth, you stay here. You stay here. And if you get thirsty, you go get something to drink from the jars that have been filled with water. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to take care of you. He is showing kindness above and beyond what would be expected, what anybody could expect. In fact, later on, when the harvesters sit down to eat, he does something totally unheard of. He invites Ruth to come and eat. And he says, dip the bread in the wine vinegar, share the meal. And in fact, it says she ate till she was full. And then he calls the harvesters over and he says, listen, if she gleans from the sheaves, if she takes before you've even gotten to it, do not embarrass her. Do not embarrass her. In fact, when you are harvesting, drop things for her. Drop, drop things so that she can have in abundance. He is showing her a kindness, a, 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 a grace beyond what could be expected. And it says at the end of the day, that she had gathered and threshed an ephah of barley. An ephah would have been about, for her and Naomi, half a month's worth of food. Two to two and a half to three weeks of food. In other words, an abundance. And Ruth takes it home tonight, Naomi, and Naomi is stunned. Where did you get this? And she says, I got it from Boaz's field. And she says this, Naomi says this, he has not stopped showing loving kindness to the living or the dead since we have come. He has not stopped showing loving kindness. The word there in Hebrew is hesed. And it is the same word that is often applied to the loving kindness of God. It's the loving kindness that goes above and beyond what we have any expectation of or right of expectation of. That's Boaz. He steps in to a moment of desperation and despondency, and he brings loving kindness. He brings a compassion and, and, a, and a grace and a caring that begins to change the trajectory of their story. The other thing he brings is an obligation or a responsibility. And this is the other thing Naomi says. It says that Boaz is our guardian redeemer, or some of the scriptures will say kinsman redeemer. Now, this goes to Jewish family law, if you are familiar with some of the Jewish family law of the Old Testament. But in a nutshell, this is what it says. If your husband dies, then the obligation of his brother is to buy his land and to marry his widow to keep the family line going. Remember, marriages, not that there wasn't love in marriages, but there was also a social contract. And so if a, if a husband died and the brother was alive, the brother was then to marry the wife and to buy the land, to protect the legacy of the brother. That would be a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer. Boaz is in the line, in the family line. He is a kinsman redeemer. And so in chapter 3, and I'm just going to kind of, just for time, I'm going to kind of gloss over that, but you can read it. Um, Ruth basically makes it known to Boaz. She goes to him on the threshing floor and makes it known, um, I'm available. 
I'm, I'm open to the redemption you can bring. I'm open to, to be your wife so that you can fulfill the family law. The only issue is Boaz isn't the first in line. He's second in line. So in Ruth chapter 4, Boaz goes and he has a conversation with the man who is in line to marry Ruth and buy the field, buy the, the, the property of Elimelech and Kilion and Malon. And, and he says, I can't do it. I can't do it. And so Boaz steps up. And this is the fourth word, redeeming, redeeming. He redeems through his action, Naomi and Ruth. And it is not something to be taken lightly. It's expensive. It's costly. He has to buy that land. He has to to make sacrifices himself to step in to fulfill this, not only obligation, but this opportunity to live out the loving kindness. And so this is what we read. And I want to read this from Ruth um, chapter 4. It says in verse 9, it says, Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. So again, costly redemption. But then he goes on to say this. He says, then, the, or then it says this. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the, women who is com- make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Hear that? Like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have a standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who, bore, who Tamar bore to Judah. May you have standing in the land. May you be famous in Bethlehem. The last word after loving kindness and redeeming is including. Because through Boaz's act, Ruth is included into a family of, of really of salvation. And Naomi is included into that. The next thing we read is that Ruth lay with her husband and conceived and gave birth to a son. And when he was born, Naomi took him and she laid him in her lap. And the people said, Naomi has a son. Because Naomi is included, Ruth is included. All of a sudden, a story of desperation, a story of of destitution, of despondency becomes a story of redemption and holy inclusion. And there's something really, really significant, not just into inclusion in a family for stability, but what God includes Ruth in, where she fits into a a plan well beyond herself. Because here is what we read. This is... The genealogy of the child that Ruth and Boaz had. It says there at the end of Ruth chapter chapter 4. It says that Ruth had a son and the women said Naomi has a son. And they called him Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of David. Ruth was the great grandmother of the great king of Israel, David. Ruth gets included into a narrative, into a story, into a plan that is far more than she could have ever imagined. But there's another piece to the story worth noting. 
Because if you go to Matthew chapter 1, you read the genealogy of Jesus through the mothers, through the women. And this is what we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 about the genealogy of Jesus. It sounds very, very familiar to what I just read. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. You may not know the name, but it is really worth noting that the man who showed loving kindness, the man who worked redemption, the man who included Ruth and Naomi into the family, Boaz, Boaz's mother was Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab is the story of a woman who knew desperation, who knew despondent, but also knew what it was like to experience loving kindness, who knew what it was like to experience redemption, who was included into the story of the people of Israel and into the line of Jesus. Boaz had seen it through his mother and he became the instrument God would use to, to share it with the woman that would become his wife. Despondency and desperation that give way to loving kindness and redemption and inclusion. This, this is the story of God. This is the story of, of Christmas. This is what God does on a cosmic sail through the birth of Jesus because we know, all of us know, what it's like to experience desperation in various ways, in different places. But we live in a world where desperation slaps us across the face sometimes. Economic hardships, relationships that struggle, um, tensions with kids, opportunities, illness, we could go on and on and on, but in our lives at some level, we know what it's like to feel the desperation of a moment or a time or a season. And many of us, if we're honest, in places we don't always like to be real honest because it doesn't sound holy and it doesn't sound Christ-like, but we know what it's like to speak those words like Naomi, call me Mara, because God has made my life bitter. We know what it's like to cry out to God sometimes and say, where are you? I don't understand this. Why is this happening? We know these moments, but the hope of the Christmas story, the hope of the story of Ruth, the hope of the Gospels, the promise of the Gospel, is that God steps into those places. And just like Jesus came to, to be the instrument of God's said, God's loving kindness, Jesus who would go above and beyond what we could ever imagine for our redemption for our salvation all the way to the cross. We end the living nativity. We end the story of the birth of Jesus by pointing to the cross of Jesus because that's where the fullness of God's redemption is played out. And so we receive God's loving kindness. We, through faith, when we make ourselves available to the grace of God, we are invited to experience the redemption of God, the salvation of God. It's offered to you and offered to me. By faith, you are, or by grace, you are saved through faith. And then we become included into God's story. A story that is of and beyond each of us. That's the way God works. He worked that way then. He works that way now. Over and over I have the privilege because I'm in ministry and many of you will come and share. And I get to hear the stories 
of people whose lives were turned around, who God met in places of desperation and destitution and despondency and changed their stories through loving kindness and redemption and inclusion. That's how God works. I heard a pastor talk about a man, a friend of his named Bill. And I've heard stories like Bill's all the time. And Bill was a guy who his marriage had fallen apart and his health was failing. And he was as miserable and as low as possibly could be. And his friends took him out to Colorado to ride motorcycles. And while they were out riding the back roads of Colorado, his motorcycle got too close to the edge and he went off about a 70-foot drop. And when he fell, he fell on his hands, and he broke both arms from his hands to his shoulders. So for months, he was in a cast, just locked in both hands. Everything had to be done for him. And so every day at his home, he'd have home health care, and nurses would come. But a guy would come and would clean his pool, and um, he would wheel him out to the pool. And he'd sit there, and he'd talk to him, and he would tell him about Jesus every day. Finally, that man gave his life to Jesus. And things began to change. And in his moments of despondency and, and desperation, he experienced the loving kindness of God. And things began to change, and he began to get his health back in order. And he began to focus his life and to give up those addictive patterns that had torn him apart. And he found a woman who loved Jesus too, and, and they got married, and, and God gave them twins. And he said, the story is that the twins drove him crazy. And as children would do, and, and one day, one of the boy's cats got stuck in a tree. And they called Dad and said, Dad, can you come help? And his wife said, don't worry, boys, your, your hero's coming. And he came, and, and he got that cat out of his tree. And this little boy looked at him and said, Dad, you're my hero. And he said, life is better. Life is better. That's what Jesus has done for me. He said, life is better. That's what God does. That's what God does. I pray that you know the grace, the redemption, the loving kindness, the inclusion of God, because that's the gift at Christmas. That's what God gives. Into our storms and into our turmoil, that's the peace he speaks. I pray for each of us, today and always, we would know that peace. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we... We pray that you'd speak your truth and your peace and your presence into our lives. Bless us in these moments and in all our moments that we would trust in you and in Jesus we would know life is better. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.